Good morning. I was reminded as Daniel was praying that, you know, we're, we're here worshiping with these, I don't know, couple, few hundred people here uh, this morning. Um, but really, we're, we are joined up together with a whole world that is uh, devoted their Sunday morning to the worship of God. Um, in some parts of the world, it's afternoon. They've already done this. In other parts of the world, they'll be doing this this evening. Um, but it's, it's always helpful to remind us that God is very busy in the world. God is not only focused on Four Corners Church in Noonan, Georgia, right? Uh, we, can, we can sometimes be lulled into that. Um, but what we are doing here now is to, to join ourselves up with what millions or billions of Christians are doing this morning, uh, today, all over the world. And that's an exciting thing to know that we are part of that. And hopefully, uh, the Word is the thing that is uniting uh, all of those gatherings as Daniel prayed. God's Word is singular. God speaks many words, yes, many different words, but they all come together to form His one singular Word. And we're reminded of that, I think, today as we take a break from Exodus and visit our intermittent focus in Philippians we're, we're changing genre, we're changing audience, we're changing author, we're changing original language, we're changing millennium when we go from Exodus to Philippians. When we were in Romans and we would take a break and go to Philippians, we were just a few pages later, same author, same language, different audience, but generally the same culture. And now we're, we're spanning almost the whole Bible to go from Exodus to Philippians, yet we are reminded that we are still in in reading God's singular word. So as we we read this today, we're reminded that the the same word that brought the frogs up, hopping, the same word that cast out all the swarms of flies is the same word that we read of in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 this morning. That's comforting to me. It's helpful to remember that God wrote one book over millennia, dozens of authors, two to three different languages, different cultures, different personalities, worked through all of these things, yet at the end of the day, God wrote one book because his word is singular. So I gave you our text this morning, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. If you're visiting with us, uh, let me welcome you. Uh, we are not normally in Philippians. Uh, our, our normal focus is Exodus. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of the plagues. Uh, Lord willing, next week when Lonnie returns, we'll be uh, back at plague number five. Uh, that's our normal focus, but um, uh, when we take breaks, right now, our, our parallel series has been going through Philippians, and I didn't realize this, but I was looking back at my notes yesterday, and we've been in Philippians for over a year. Uh, we're only halfway through chapter two, uh, clearly, so this is, we're, not, we're not flying through. As we have opportunity, we visit Philippians, but we have been here for over a year now, and specifically, uh, we've been in a section uh, that Paul started back in chapter one, verse 27. We started that section back in March. And today we come to the conclusion of that mini 
section within the epistle. Paul begins Philippians, just a, a brief overview, uh, with a, uh, an update on his situation. He's in prison in Rome, and he writes back to the Philippians, this church he had been a part of, of planting years before. He writes back to them to, to update them on how the gospel has surprisingly advanced in Rome, even given his current situation. And he, he also shares with them how he expects his situation to shake out. He's not positive, but he thinks it will not end in his death, at least this time. He greets his friends warmly there in Philippi, but his greetings are not just sentimental, they're theological also, because in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul is, is reminding them that, that the grounds for their mutual participation in Christ, that's the thing that's, that's bound them together, the grounds for their mutual, mutual participation is the gospel. So all of this, all of this warm, uh, sentimental language is not just to Paul to express his longing for them, but also to remind them that they have a, a partnership here built on something other than common interests. It's, it's a partnership built on the gospel of Christ. And this is what occupies Paul up through chapter 1, verse 26. These greetings, pleasantries, updates on his situation, encouragements of their partnership And then in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul begins this section that we've been in now for today. We'll make the fourth sermon in this section. The the first period of exhortation in the letter began in chapter 1, verse 27. And the banner which sits over this section comes in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's kind, of, that's kind of the summary statement of this whole section from 127 to 218. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we noticed when we looked at that text a few months ago that, that what Paul is calling them to, uh, the word let your manner of life be, uh, literally means be a, be a citizen of, be a worthy citizen of the kingdom where the gospel is the law of the land. So this whole section, we've, we've, kind of, we've talked about citizenship. This is a, a call to proper citizenship in the kingdom, to live worthily as citizens in the kingdom of God. It, but specifically, Paul fleshes out this appeal to citizenship with an eye on the corporate unity among the body of believers in Philippi. There are many different directions he could have gone when he brought up the theme of citizenship. But his greatest burden is that in Philippi, their conduct among one another would be worthy of the gospel. Or we could say this. Paul's burden is that the miraculous work of the gospel that has already been done in their hearts, individually and internally, must now be worked out corporately and externally. That's how Paul has designed this appeal to citizenship, to appeal to their corporate unity. The first section in this, uh, first text in this section was chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. Be citizens together for the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, stand firm in one spirit. Strive side by side. Press on together in the face of opposition. 
so that by their obedience of faith, they would press into the ministry God has given all of them together at the church in Philippi. The second text, Paul offers the fundamentals of citizenship. This was chapter one verses, uh, chapter two, verses one, uh, one through four. The fundamentals of citizenship are unity and humility. The main threat to unity is self-centeredness. So Paul focuses on the antidote to self-centeredness, which is humility. He writes in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then Paul, Paul stays on that theme in the next section. He presses into the issue of humility in verses 5 through 11, chapter 2. He presents Jesus as the premier example of humility. We recognize the last time, this was the last sermon in June. We recognize the unique theological and canonical and historical significance of that text, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So it was unique in one sense, but for all of its grandeur, that text of the example of Jesus' humility is, is an illustration. And the climax of that illustration came in verse 8, when in his humility, the second person of the Trinity is dead on a Roman cross. So if that passage then was an illustration of Jesus' humility, the climax of which is the cross, the message there was, in your citizenship, be citizens shaped by the cross. Well, Today, the final verses in this section, verses 12 through 18, Paul appeals for the Philippians to be citizens active in the kingdom. That's the title of our sermon, Citizens Active in the Kingdom. And he makes this appeal for the sake of three things. Number one, be citizens active in the kingdom for the sake of your own salvation. Be citizens active in the kingdom for the sake of your witness in the world. And finally, be citizens active in the kingdom for the sake of Paul's own ministry. So if you would, let's stand and read this text. I am going to start us back in chapter 1, verse 27. I think the next time we preach, we'll just not go back to 127, because we'll have finished this section. But one more time, we'll read this section, the banner of which is proper citizenship. This is the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love 
being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And now our text for today. Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation." among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You can have a seat. Will you pray with me as we ask the Lord one more time to work through his word? God, we come here now not on our own power, knowing that I cannot speak on this text in an effective way, and we cannot hear this text in an effective way without your spirit. I don't have the words, we don't have the attention, we don't have the 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 spiritual eyes on our own to see what you've given us. So I pray that you would now uh, work through these next few minutes so that we might hear what you have to say. Would you do the same for our children, those who are in the back hearing this morning of the difficult text in, in 1 Samuel with David and Bathsheba. I pray that you would use even that text to teach them of their own sin. Thank you, God, for this time. I pray that it would be fruitful for us and honoring to you. Amen. <clears throat> well, immediately prior to verse 12, Paul has been soaring in the loftiest theological heights imaginable with the, the Christ hymn of verses uh, 5 through 11. And specifically in verses 9 through 11, he was discussing the greatness of the glory of God as manifested through the exaltation of the Son. He has ascended to the the highest point of the whole Bible, the glory of the Son of God, immediately before this text. That's where Paul has been. But this is helpful here. I want to read this quote from Kent Hughes to to help us see how Paul moves from uh, the Christ hymn of 
verses 5 through 11 to today's text. Kent Hughes writes, Paul has raised this high Christology with an eye to ground level practicality. If we've learned anything from from two years in Romans with Paul and now a year in Philippians, it's that Paul never isolates theology from action. Right? Paul, for, for Paul, theology always drives action. So, so he does not just continue to perpetually swirl around in the heights of verses 5 through 11, but it's those very heights that drive him back to earth for, as Kent Hughes says, ground level practicality. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The main thrust in these first two verses, as we, as we consider being citizens active in the kingdom for the sake of our own salvation, the main thrust here is this, is this command to work out your own salvation. But it takes Paul a minute to get there. He, he adds all these, these qualifiers between the therefore and the work out. There's all these, these things. My beloved, as you have obeyed, uh, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's, he's a wordy guy, this Paul. We got to deal with that. Um, but these aren't just fluff. These aren't just throwaway sentences here. Um, and, and I want to I take notice of how he describes his audience because I think it's instructive for a group of Christians who come together to be instructed from the Bible. Paul, Paul describes the Philippians that he's writing to as, as folks who have always obeyed. Paul, Paul regards the Philippians generally as a faithful bunch. They have their issues, yes, and we've seen some of that and we'll see more of that as we progress through. But generally... As soon as the gospel hit the ground in Philippi, the Philippians had been faithful to receive it and to obey it. You can read about that in Acts 16, the first day of the gospel in Philippi. And Paul has written with confidence already of the the salvation that God has granted to them and and, and, and with surety that it will be completed, is chapter 1, verse 6. So Paul's writing to an already obedient people. We don't get the sense that this is like the Corinthians. Paul writes to these folks and, you know, depending on how they go, they're liable to go off the rails in Corinth. Or he writes to the churches in Galatia who, who may have already gone off the rails, right? That, that doesn't seem to be the situation in Philippi. This is those who have already obeyed. Yet he still finds the need to instruct this already obedient people for the need to continue to pursue the Christian life. Now, the reason I bring that out is because we obviously come here with many different things on our shoulders, right? Many different situations throughout the week, many different backgrounds. Some are are hurting and suffering and distracted and, and the list goes on. But others are coming here similar to how the Philippians have been described. Those who have always obeyed. Who have, who have generally been a faithful bunch. And I think the reminder here is that even those Christians need these kind of instructions. Even those Christians need these kind of reminders. This, the, the, the Bible is not just for those who are sort of, uh, you know, floundering in their Christian life. But even those who have 
generally been a people who have always obeyed, need every word that God has to say. Every word. None of us stands on our own. None of us rests on our laurels. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.10, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Friends, I just need to share with you, whether you have always obeyed, as Paul says, or not, none of us stands on our own. None of us. So let us all take heed. None of us think that we're above these elementary truths of the gospel. None of us are beyond that. None of us will ever be beyond that as long as we breathe. These obedient and faithful Philippians still desperately need the command that Paul issues in verse 12. Work out your own salvation. Now, this word work out doesn't mean exercise. Uh, It doesn't mean to sort of grow your salvation. It doesn't mean develop. Uh, Literally, it means to cause it to be or to bring your salvation to full effect. Bring your salvation to its full manifestation. Bring your salvation to effect. Ultimately, to work out is an issue of obedience, I want to show you how this is a comparative sentence, and you'll you'll see how how that's showing us this is an issue of obedience. Look at your text. Look at verse 12. Remember, these are not throwaway fluff. They're actually going to help us. Paul says, as you have always obeyed, that's sort of the first half, so now, here comes the second half, work out your own salvation. Paul's saying, the obedience thing that has defined you in the past Let that obedience continue to define you in the future as you continue to work out your salvation. Past obedience needs to continue, and now he's calling it future working out. This is an issue of obedience. You see right away why I've titled this sermon, Citizens Active in the Kingdom. It's not surprising that Paul would give this, sorry, not surprising that Paul would give this instruction If we're paying attention to how the Bible talks about salvation, this falls right in line. When the Bible speaks of what happens to the human heart at salvation, it's like a nuclear bomb goes off in the heart. The the landscape of the heart, which previously existed, is now totally unrecognizable after the moment of salvation. Totally changed. Here's some of the language that the Bible uses to, to describe this change. An old creation versus a new creation. Called out of darkness and into light. Hearts of stone turned to hearts of flesh. Slaves of sin turned into slaves of righteousness. These pictures tell us that the change that happens to the human heart in salvation is so fundamental, so comprehensive, so, so monumental that there is no such thing as a saved heart which does not mirror these things externally. Let me read to you Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The grace of our God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Okay, what's the effect of that? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this age. This is the language of the New Testament. 
That, that salvation is a, a nuclear bomb that happens. The old has passed away and the new has come. It actually produces something in us. The working out of our salvation is something essential to being saved. Right, let, let me put it this way. It's part of the essence of salvation that it be worked out. There, there simply is no such thing as a dormant salvation. Where it is not worked out, it does not exist. This is what James means when he says faith without works is dead. By the way, don't let anybody ever tell you that Paul and James are at odds, that they're these two different theologies. It's not true. This is what James means when he says faith without works is dead, that a dormant salvation is no salvation at all. Paul is calling the Philippians to evidence their salvation, to bring it to full effect, to manifest externally that nuclear bomb that's already gone off internally. And he qualifies that we do this with fear and trembling. These these two words were used frequently together in the Old Testament, often to describe what happens to Israel's enemies when they realize the power of God. But for us, this is these words, fear and trembling, the manner in which we are to work out our salvation. It's not a fear-inducing terms. They're, they're reverence-inducing terms. Reminds us that we are, are meant to work out our salvation before the face of this holy God. Being citizens in the kingdom for the sake of our own salvation, is, is not a casual endeavor. That's the idea here. This is not a casual, flippant endeavor. It's our wonderful and intimate Father is also terrifying and utterly transcendent. We've been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series with my kids, and uh, right now we're uh, reading uh, The Horse and His Boy. I don't know if you've ever read that book. Uh, but there comes a point towards the end of the book where the, the main character is, is walking and he's, he's terrified. There's a lion around him and this lion has sort of been, been around him and his comrades throughout the whole book and he's never seen it. Uh, but he, he, he's, he's, it's, it, he knows it's, it's tried to get them before and, and it, it's sort of this, this looming thing in the back of his head and he shivers and starts to tremble all over until the lion speaks. And uh, I, don't, I don't have the quote here, but... He, he, he writes in there that uh, suddenly a different kind of trembling came over me. Uh, there was no longer this fear-inducing thing, but there was a, a different kind of trembling that was comforting and terrifying at the same time. That's the God that we worship. So we work out our salvation. We evidence the change in our hearts always before the face of God. There are no throwaway moments in the Christian life. Always, every minute is done before God's face. So we work it out with that in mind. But we have to consider the context here. We, we can't just abandon the context that Paul has been talking about uh, towards unity in the corporate body in Philippi. We're, we're still under the banner of citizenship and Paul has continued to emphasize that corporate unity So when we read this about working out our salvation, we need to realize that this is not a text about the doctrine of salvation. 
Okay, this is also, it's, it's not a text about personal piety. It's not just a text about, you know, me doing my Christian walk so that I can, you know, work out my salvation, you know, sort of individually. In, it, in its context, we have to see this as an ethical call for the Philippians to evidence their salvation within the believing community of which they are a part. That's what this whole section has been about. And given the heavy focus on unity we've seen so far, in chapter 4, Paul's specifically going to address this spat between these two ladies. It seems to be this is the area where the Philippian salvation needs working out. They've largely been obedient, but here, when it comes to their corporate unity, they need to work that out more fully. That seems to be why Paul's addressing it. So the reality of each one's individual salvation needs to come to bear more fully on how they treat one another in the church. So we connect this back to all the other things he said. Remember the the call to humility, the call to unity, the call for them to strive side by side, to to be of the same love, the same mind, having having the, uh, uh, being in full accord and of one mind. All of these things were just different ways for Paul to say, work out your salvation with one another. He's been saying this since chapter 1, verse 27. It's just that now he finally puts it in these terms. All along, he's been calling them to this. The point for us here, this is so instructive to see this in its context. Because it is helpful to see, work out your salvation and sort of apply that to what that means for our you know, our, our genuineness of faith and our sanctification. But in its context, the, the point here is that, you know, you can have all the Bible study. You can do, all, you know, all the, 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 the prayer journals. Memorize all the scripture. Evangelize the lost. Give to the needy. Care for the orphan and widow. But if you're bitter against your own church body or against God's people... Your salvation is not worked out. That's the point here. The Philippians have been always obedient, but here they're lacking. You can have all the personal piety in the world. But if your mindset is, I just don't do church people, that's wrong. That's the idea here. Those two cannot go together. So work out your salvation in such a way that your salvation comes to bear on how you treat one another in the church. That's what Paul's after. For the sake of the genuineness of your salvation. Yes, of course, work it out per individually. We know that's a given. Okay, that's a given to work our salvation out, each one individually, right? But certainly in the context of the believing community. That's where Paul's mind is as he writes this to the Philippians. I want to read this quote from Marcus Bachmuel. He, it's a short quote. He says, The challenge of working out your salvation is both to each of them and to all of them. The challenge is both to each of them and to all of them. So, so look, each of us in the church is an I. But at the same time, each of us is an us. Okay? I've heard, you may have heard Ken Spear say this. Um, I've heard him say this in membership interviews, that when, when a person becomes a member of Four Corners Church, there's no more they. There's no more 
what they are doing. They is in Four Corners Church. To, to, to unite yourself and become a, a member of this body of believers is to become the us, right? And Paul's burden here is that each individual I work out his salvation in the context of the us. To be a proper citizen, active in the kingdom, working out your salvation in the context of the us. So we just have to ask ourselves, does my salvation affect the way I live among God's people? Am I long-suffering and patient and honest and humble and kind? Do I show hospitality and encourage and love and instruct and correct and forgive and honor and pray for and serve, submit to? Are these the things that characterize me as I relate in this community? If not, then the call is work out your salvation more fully in those areas because your salvation should produce those things as you live in the body of Christ. But Paul's sentence doesn't stop there. We have to consider verse 13 as as welded to verse 12. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now I want to point something out here to see if we've picked up on this. Look at verse 12. We have an imperative. You might know where I'm going with this. The imperative is work out. Now look at verse 13. We have an indicative. God is the one. Do you remember? Do you remember how these work together? Do you remember how the imperative and the indicative work together in the gospel? We've seen this several times in Philippians. The indicative grounds the imperative. The being is the grounds for the doing. Right? We're, we're seeing that again. And I want to show you something even cooler here. By the way, four of you might find this interesting. There's gospel in the grammar, okay? There's gospel in the grammar. That's what I want to show you. Look at the word for. What does that word do? It's a little conjunction. It connects one phrase to another. What does that word do? It means whatever just came before is grounded by what's about to come after, right? So look, in this case, the imperative came first in, chapter, in verse 12. And the indicative comes second. But the for does this. The for means the, imperative, the indicative which comes second is actually the grounds for the imperative. Okay, I'll stop with all that. What am I saying? The, what I'm saying is God works in you so that you can work out. That's the point. That's the point. God works in you is the grounds for your ability to work out your salvation. Or we could say, God works in us that which we are to work out. Here's another quote to explain these, this connection. It's from Gordon Fee. God is the one who empowers in this regard. They are indeed at work. Yes, obedience after all takes willing and doing. But they are able to do so precisely because God himself is at work in and among them. 
this verb elsewhere does not so much mean that God is doing it for them, but that God supplies the necessary empowering. And he goes on to call it an effective empowering. God's work in us is an effective empowering for us to work it out. We are responsible for our salvation, but God is the one who is at work in us. Paul illustrates this similar thing. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, he writes this. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. No one has outworked me in the gospel, but it was not I. It was the grace of God that is with me, right? We've seen this, this similar tension with Pharaoh, right? God is sovereign to harden Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh is totally responsible for hardening his own heart. We run into these un, unstoppable force and immovable object kind of issues all throughout the Bible. And at the end of the day, the Bible is just not interested in giving us how these things work together. It's just not, it, Paul's burden is not to explain the mechanics of this. Neither is it Moses' burden to explain how that works in Exodus. We're not given access to that part of the mysteries of God. We're simply left to say that with these things, we have two simultaneous realities and inseparable operations. We are responsible to work out our salvation, and God works our salvation in us. God effectively works that which we must work out. The two cannot be parsed. He works in our actions and in our will. He works both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Apart from the gospel, we're enslaved to sin. Our will only chooses sin every time. But for those in Christ, he has not only reprogrammed our hands to do the work, but he has reprogrammed our hearts to desire to do that which pleases him. He works in our will and in our work. So to take inventory of these two verses. Paul is saying, work out your salvation. And, and in so he's summarizing everything he's said about unity and humility and perseverance to spur the Philippians and us on to unity in the church because that displays the effects of our salvation. Work out your salvation among the believing community. Our second point, the second area Paul goes is to work out your salvation it's for the sake of your witness in, in the world. Paul's been more general with his instructions in verses 12 and 13, but now they become more specific and targeted when we get into verse 14, 15, and the first part of 16. Let me read those. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. These specific instructions are part of the working out that he's already told them to do. Paul's concern is that they, that they uh, 
they work out their salvation properly for the sake of their witness in the world. So Paul's not just now thinking about the, the, the salvation in the believing community. He's now thinking about how that looks as a witness to the unbelieving world. Be blameless and innocent against the backdrop of a generation that is crooked and twisted. Shine as brilliant light against the backdrop of a world that is dark and black. This is a reminder that the working out of our salvation does not just concern you. It doesn't just concern this body of believers. It also concerns what we communicate to an unbelieving world. When we function as proper citizens in this way, with an active, a worked out salvation, we are displaying the set-apartness of God's people, right? the holiness of God's people. And when we display the holiness of God's people, we're pointing to the holiness of God. So the first thing Paul does is to mention, he doesn't just mention, it's much stronger than a mention, it's an instruction to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, this might seem oddly specific, like Paul's sort of subtext, he's got some subtext in the background, and he's sort of oddly with odd specificity, mentioning their grumbling and disputing. But this is universal, no? Like, we all complain. We all grumble. Chances are you've done it today. Maybe not outwardly, but we are prone to do this in our hearts. And, and I, I think with these words, Paul's, if, if he's not consciously expecting the Philippians to go here, I think, I think Paul is thinking of the wilderness generation. I think he's referring us back to that. So I want to I read a few ways of how the wilderness generation of Israel, this is part of what Daniel read this morning from Exodus 16, demonstrates the seriousness of grumbling. The text Daniel read this morning happened six weeks or a month and a half or so after the Exodus. Israel is upset. The complaining about their lack of provision Eight times in that passage that Daniel read this morning talked about how they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. So God graciously provides them manna. We fast forward to Numbers chapter 11. The manna is great and all, but we really want some meat. To grumble for some meat. God gives them meat, all right. And a plague to go along with it. For their grumbling. And those who grumbled those who had the craving of meat and grumbled he struck down in numbers 11 fast forward a few more chapters later in numbers 13 god sends uh, moses sends the spies out to look and check in on the promised land that they're soon going to capture and uh, for all but two for all but Caleb and Joshua they come back with a an entirely faithless report we can't go in there there's giants over there we look like grasshoppers compared to them no way So the people, they hear this report. This is what they say in Numbers uh, 14, 1 and 2. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had just died in Egypt, or that we would have died in this wilderness. So here God's anger is kindled and God threatens to just disinherit them altogether and start over with Moses. He doesn't. 
but he gives them 40 years of wandering in the desert because of their grumbling. Did you know, you, you know that they wandered? Did you know it was because they complained? Did you know it was because of their grumbling was the reason that they had to wander around in Egypt for 40 years? God needed that generation of grumblers to die off before they could go into the promised land. That's why he made them delay for four decades. Do you see the seriousness of grumbling as exhibited by the the wilderness generation? Numbers 14 actually relates their grumbling to rebellion and faithlessness. When Aaron, I think it's Aaron that goes and talks to the people as they've grumbled. And he goes, do not rebel against God. Equating their grumbling with rebellion. Do you ever consider this? That complaining is a lack of faith. Grumbling displays a lack of faith in God. Grumbling, this is what it does. It, it announces to the world that you are displeased with the way God is orchestrating his business. And we don't have to grumble directly against God. In Israel, uh, the, 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 the situations I just read of, it often says they were grumbling against Moses and Aaron. And, and because Moses was God's representative, so they were essentially grumbling against God. We don't have to consciously grumble against God. If he is sovereign and he has orchestrated all of our situations and our stations in life, then to grumble in any area is to grumble against the one who orchestrated that situation. To grumble is to announce your displeasure with the God of the universe. This is rebellion indeed. Same goes for disputing. A readiness to announce our displeasure with others. To get into it. Particularly within the believing community. There's another quote that's helpful. These things then, speaking of grumbling and disputing are not minor blemishes of morality, peripheral human weaknesses in an otherwise flawless Christian spectacle. Instead, they are part of what marks the watershed of the Christian life. So what he means by that is, what he means by watershed is that grumbling and disputing are activities for those who have no faith in God. Grumbling And disputing is the dividing line between the actions of those who have faith in God and those who do not have faith in God. Therefore, when we engage in grumbling or disputing, it becomes a self-destructive bomb to our Christian witness. No wonder Paul here speaks of grumbling when he wants to speak of our proper citizenship before a watching world. Because grumbling is a bomb that destroys that testimony. Look, at the end of the day, we just need to realize that our grumbling, our complaining, our disputing is a much bigger deal than we think. So, the instruction is, do all things without grumbling and disputing. And when you do, you will be in evident contrast to the generation around you that is crooked and twisted. Now, I think once again, we're drawn back to the Old Testament. Paul uses these words, crooked and twisted. Uh, sorry, Paul, habit. Moses uses these words, crooked and twisted, 
In Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, this is right before his death, and Moses ironically calls the wilderness generation of Israel blemished, crooked, and twisted. So I think what we have stacked up here is Moses saying, do not behave like the wilderness generation. You are to be without blemish, verse 15, children of God without blemish. Let the unbelieving world be crooked and twisted. That's not to define you. You are children of God, and for the sake of your Christian witness, evidence that by doing all things without grumbling and disputing. When unbelievers see so-called Christians with this air of, of grumble, announcing their displeasure and behaving like the crooked and twisted generation does, it does nothing to draw them to Christ. Paul's talking about the contrast between believers and the world. When we act like the world in our grumbling, it does nothing to point to Christ. All all it does is self-destruct our testimony. So being proper citizens in this respect leads to being blameless and innocent and without blemish. Those are the, the three words Paul uses in verse 15. That you may be blameless, innocent, and without blemish. And, and when, you, when you read those words, it may trigger thoughts of atonement and justification. just want to be clear on how these words are being used. Regarding atonement and justification, those who are in Christ have received and imputed I mean, a, a not their own, a given to them blamelessness. We have received an imputed righteousness. But we also know we carry around this body of sin. So we are already blameless and at the same time not yet blameless. Right? I say that, but I also have to say that's not the point of Paul's making. That's not the distinction he's getting at here. I say that because I, I want us to properly understand how blameless, innocent, and without blemish are being used. He's not teaching that distinction. He's not out to teach the doctrine of salvation. He's not out to set some unreachable standard or some ethical perfection. These adjectives are just stacked on top of each other don't really need to tear them apart. They're kind of circling around the same meaning. They're stacked on top of each other to reinforce the contrast. Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel that you may be a light in the darkness. Work out your own salvation in this way that you may be blameless and innocent, seen as true children of God as you walk around in this generation that is exactly the opposite. When we stand in contrast to that world, we offer the word that brings life. Verse 16, do this, holding fast to the word of life. I don't think Paul has the proper noun, capital W, word in mind here. Um, I think he has in mind the message that brings life, the word that brings life. We could probably substitute gospel here, holding fast to the gospel Hold fast to the gospel to be a proper citizen for the sake of your witness in the world. There's only one hope for this world. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the same way that the sun is the only source of light in the sky, you know, 
we know that, not really there's other stars, but from our perspective, you get what I'm saying, the sun is the only source of light in the sky. In the same way, the gospel is the only source of life in a world that is destined for death. The gospel was not only for your first day. I use that language because that's what he uses back in chapter 1, verse 6, the first day of the gospel when the Philippians first believed. The gospel is not just for the first day when you believe. Hold fast to it. Part of the message of the gospel is that when you receive that new heart on the basis of the atoning work in, of, of, of Jesus, you are then set in motion every day the rest of your life to work out those effects. The working out of those effects is holding fast to the word of life. The working out of our salvation is holding fast to the gospel. The message of the gospel is for the first day in Christ and every day after. So to be proper citizens in the kingdom is to hold fast to this message. Conduct ourselves by it. Live by it. Broadcast it. And if necessary, die by this word that brings life. Well, finally, we move to being citizens active in the kingdom for the sake of Paul's ministry. You know, in this section, since chapter 1, verse 27, Paul has referred to himself almost none at all. So when we get into verse 16 and we start to see all these first-person verbs, these eyes, these eyes, these eyes, it, it, it surprises us a little bit. And it tips us off that Paul has, has shifted his focus. He's still under the, in this train of thought, but he's shifted his focus as he concludes this section. And he asks the Philippians to work out their salvation for the sake of his own ministry. Look at uh, the second, second section of verse 16. Some translations, by the way, put a period after the word of life because it's, it's clear that Paul's starting a new thought. So it, it, it's easier to read in some than it is in the ESV. We're just going to start in the middle of a sentence. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What would make Paul's labor in vain? <clears throat> what would cause Paul's ministry to end up being fruitless? If, on the day of Christ, the Philippians were found to not be genuine. The day of Christ is that future day of judgment when the Lord will disclose whatever was the actual fruit of our labors in this life. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 3.13. Let each one's work become manifest for the day will disclose it. The capital D day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So Paul's saying, if on the day of Christ your, your faith turns out to be not genuine, my ministry will have been in vain. But this is not self-serving for Paul. He's not, he's not after his track record. His concern for his ministry is really a concern for the genuineness of the Philippians' faith. This entire section we're learning here at the end has been instructions towards genuineness. Paul cares about how well the Philippians are working out their salvation because he cares for the genuineness of their faith. 
You know, none of us are apostles. None of us have this kind of authority. None of us have the vocation that Paul had. But you don't have to be an apostle to care for the sanctification of your fellow believers. Paul's demonstrated that for us here. So as, as we finish, I have to put this question before us all. Are you concerned for the sanctification of your fellow believers? Why are you here? We'll put aside the obvious, the redeemed Christians worship the Lord with body of believers. But beyond that, why are you here? Is it for friendship, camaraderie, support? Those are good things, of course. But we must also add to that list, we're here because I am genuinely concerned for your salvation. So my, my relationships need to be such that I can, I can be concerned for you. If they just sort of exist on the top two inches, we can't do this. Our relationships in the corporate body need to be concerned with one another's faith, concerned with the genuineness of our confession. Paul is willing to spend himself to this end for the Philippians. He writes this in verse 17, and this comes as a little little parachuted in from out of nowhere in verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Let me explain what's going on here as we draw out the point he's making. There's there's some uh, ritual sacrificial language that kind of comes out of nowhere. But Paul seems to be picking up again in the Old Testament. Excuse me. In the Old Testament law, God required twice a day a burnt offering, once in the morning, once in the evening. And that burnt offering was to be accompanied by a drink offering. The drink offering was, was, a, was about a quart of wine poured out, spent on the burnt offering. And the analogy here is that the Philippians' faith is the burnt offering. That's the main offering being given to the Lord. And in Paul's labor among them is a complimentary offering poured out over them that goes up to the Lord as well as a compliment. Now, it's unclear whether, whether pouring out, Paul's mentioning his death. He's kind of already told us that he doesn't think he's going to die in this prison sentence. So it might just refer to his labor for the gospel, for the Philippians. That's possible too. But either way, this has been a a vivid picture in verse 17 of the extent to which Paul is welded to the Philippians in their Christian faith. He's willing to spend himself alongside them as they work out their salvation. His reminder here is, his language here, is a reminder that all of our activity in the kingdom All of our obedience, all of our doing the work of ministry is an offering unto the Lord. The Philippians' faith is an offering. Paul's labor among them is an offering. Our not complaining and grumbling is an offering. Our working out our salvation through being humble and and united and being steadfast in our faith. All of these are offerings unto the Lord. Right? The, The lamb that was offered as a burnt offering. A male, one year old, without blemish, the text says. What does Paul call them to be? Verse 15, without blemish. Our faith is an offering unto the Lord. Our labors in this life 
in the Christian life ought to be acceptable. That's how we think of what we do in this life, is offering acceptable sacrifice to the Lord as we work out our salvation. Paul concludes here, he doesn't really have any any doubt that the Philippians will prove to be genuine. He said as much already in chapter 1, verse 6. He's not really concerned for that, but he still is going to labor among them and still going to exhort them to work out their salvation. So he just explodes here as he ends with joy. I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. The Christian life is Having assurance in the Christian life is the most comforting thing we can have in all the universe. To know that however this life goes, it will terminate with us before the face of God, next to our elder brother Christ, worshiping the Lord. There's no greater comfort than knowing that that is our future. Paul knows that's his future. Paul is certain that's the future of these Philippians. So he just explodes with joy and invites them to rejoice with him. He's going to double down on joy through the rest of the letter. He's only mentioned it a couple times so far, but several times after this, joy will become a main theme. This is the disposition of a citizen in God's kingdom, a citizen who is together for the gospel, who, dis- who, 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 who displays the fundamentals of citizenship. Those who are shaped by the cross, those who are active in the kingdom, we're a joyful people because we work unto the Lord. And we know what's before us. We know what is ahead. God has invaded our hearts with the gospel. He's transferred us from the kingdom of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is indeed cause for rejoicing. So in response to this miraculous invitation into God's kingdom, let us be defined as those who, in contrast to the crooked and twisted generation, Let us be those who gladly work out our salvation, both in here and out there, to the praise of God, so that our good works may be seen by all, and they would glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this reminder this morning that even those who have always obeyed, even those who call themselves Christians would, would not take their foot off the pedal, so to speak, in, in effecting our salvation, in working out that which you have worked in us. I pray that this word would be massaged into our hearts, that you would help us to see ways that we can work out our salvation with our brothers and sisters here with those in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and on the street corners and the coffee shops? Might we be lights who shine as stars holding fast to the word of life? Might that be the message that we have to offer to this world? I pray that this word of yours would be effectual in our hearts. I pray that you would convict us where needed, comfort us where needed, And now as we go to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would remind us yet again before we leave what you have done for us. This nuclear bomb in our hearts of change that's been affected by your son hanging on the cross, spilling his blood for us. So thank you for this meal we're about to partake of. 
And I thank you for this word and this opportunity to worship you. Amen.